Indeed, great is his faithfulness. He has been good to us as a church, as his people here in Cave Spring. I invite you to open with me this morning to John chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. If we have any kiddos, kindergarten through second grade, I know this is a really long service for them to hang out in this morning. And so kindergarten through second grade, we've got somewhere for you to go back here and enjoy. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing, but they're going to have a great time, I'm sure. Um, I always try to improvise there, and I never know what they're doing, but they're going to have a great time. But we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 1. The title of the message this morning is very simple. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. The only way the things that have happened over the last 185 years happen is if Jesus is here. It's not because of a pastor It's not because of a certain set of leaders. It's not because of charisma or talent or skill. It's because Jesus is here. Lives are changed because Jesus is here. We're going to get to the text fairly quickly this morning. But I want us to first understand how we got to John chapter 2. I know last week was Labor Day weekend. I'll, I'll be honest, if you're, you're back with us, we're glad you're here this morning. We were a little thin last week, but we're glad you're with us. But I want to fill you in on how we got to John chapter 2. We tiptoed into John's gospel and started this new series entitled, Who is Jesus? But we answered this very important question at the beginning. And that question is this, who are you? Because I believe it's important for us to rightly understand who we are before we ever understand our need for Jesus. You see, in John chapter 1, we encountered John the Baptist. And they were interrogating him and asking him, who in the world are you, man? What are you doing? What are you up to? He was a strange-looking bird, and he had a lot of things going on around him, and God was doing some great stuff. And so they had a lot of questions. And as John answered the question of his identity, we also found our own identity in that passage. And that is this. Our identity rests in Jesus. It rests in him and what he does through us as we endeavor to accomplish his mission on this earth. But beginning this week and going for the next six weeks to come, we're going to move beyond the question of our identity and straight to the question of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus Our journey through John's gospel is going to be very strategic. You see, we're going to kind of parachute into some very um, important scenes that occur in John's gospel. These miracles, John calls them signs. We're not going to go sequentially through John's gospel verse by verse like you're used to me preaching. But we're going to intentionally go to each of these events. And here's what we're going to find. I know I often ask you to write down the main idea of the sermon as we we start our journey through the passage. But this morning is important. I want you to write down the main idea of this entire series. What is going to, we're going to hold on to this entire journey through his gospel. And here it is. Write this down. Each of Christ's miracles reveal who he is and the mission he came to this earth to accomplish. Each of Christ's miracles, they paint a picture, a part of the picture of what Jesus came to this earth to do and who he is. I like to think of it like this. Maybe you have done a paint-by-number or a color-by-number sketch. You know what I'm talking about. Especially those of you that are artistically challenged, you know what I'm talking about. 
right? You're looking at a black and white piece of paper. There's no color on it. And, and you could never endeavor to draw that picture yourself. But you go over to the right-hand side of the page, most likely, and there's a number one, and it says, all right, color in all the shaded areas blue. And so number one, you color in the blue parts. And you go to number two, and it says you want to color these parts red. And if you stay between the lines, you do exactly what it says, what happens? A beautiful picture emerges, and you look like Picasso in just a blink of an eye, right? You've done something incredible because you have just filled in the picture as you go. Listen, that's what the miracles of Jesus do for us. As we look at each of these miraculous acts done through our Savior, it paints an important picture of who our Savior is. D.A. Carson, the great theologian and commentator, he said it this way, and I really like this. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simply naked displays of power or neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but they're signs. They're significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. You see, Jesus did a lot of teaching. Last year in John's gospel, he made seven I am statements. We looked at those carefully. But coupled with each of those, he does things to reveal to us who he is. So that's what we're going to consider for the next several weeks together. And that's what we're considering this morning. So who is Jesus? Would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to see who Jesus is. The word of the Lord is this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What does that have to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. He called the groom and he told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is good. Today's been a good day. But Lord, it culminates really at the reading of your word, the proclamation of your word. So God, I pray that we as your people, we hear clearly from you. You speak to our hearts, you challenge us, you encourage us, and we see clearly who you are. And as a result, we're forever changed. Bless the reading and the proclamation of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Again, we're looking carefully this morning at a, the first miracle and carefully considering why Jesus did this particular miracle. Now, Make note of this. We should be especially careful to consider this first one. And here's why. John's gospel is the only place where this miracle is recorded. Now, John never endeavors to be exhaustive with his narrative. He doesn't include everything. 
But what he does include of Jesus' life, it's significant, and it tells a very important story. It paints a very important picture, especially this morning. Because again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write nothing about what happened at Cana, and that is important. Now, if you go to verse 11, go there with me, we find the first reason Jesus did this miracle. Notice what it says. It says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory. So we see this first truth. Jesus demonstrates his power to reveal his glory, to unveil who he is. Now, a couple of things should be considered about this revelation of his glory. First, this is clearly a reference back to chapter 1 and verse 14. Look back there with me very quickly. We find John begins his gospel and he says this, the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and he dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father. Here it is, he's full of grace and truth. That is the glory that Jesus is revealing through this miracle. Second, this word reveal that he uses here, it means to, to make something plain or obvious. Now, we have to understand what exactly this miracle was making plain or obvious. Now, if you look in chapter 1, there are four incredible statements made about Jesus. Some of the high, highest Christology we find is even in John chapter 1, spoken from the mouths of the very first disciples. Listen, in verse 29, you remember John called Jesus the Lamb of God, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. What an incredible thing to declare at the first sight of Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, exactly who he was and what he came to do. In verse 41, Andrew, one of the first disciples, he declares, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, we read over that quickly, but this was indeed a big deal. Before Peter, later on, ever declares Jesus to be the Messiah, we don't need to forget it was Andrew. Long before that, he said Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 45, Philip says this. He says he's the one that Moses wrote about. Again, he's saying this is the promised Messiah. And then ultimately, Nathaniel says two things in verse 49. He says this is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. All of these wonderful things had been said about Jesus. And so when he does this miracle, he begins to reveal, to make plain exactly what had been said. There are two things that are made plain here. The first one is found in verses 2 and 3. We find that Jesus reveals that he is our promised bridegroom. He's our promised bridegroom. Now, I try not to use a lot of Christian lingo or language that is confusing. I really want to make things plain and obvious, especially for someone, maybe you're here for the first time, in a church for the first time, and this sounds really strange to you. So I want to try to walk through this carefully. It is deep water, even for people who've been a believer for a long time. So listen carefully to what we find. Now, to understand this, we have to consider the setting of this first miracle. So if you look back at verses 2 and 3, let me read that to you again. There's a unique scene that begins to develop here. It says, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, that sounds a little strange. It's a custom that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Some would say the party was over. The wine was out. I want to make clear before we talk about anything else, just get this out of the way. At no point in time does Jesus turning the water into wine, does that ever endorse alcoholism? Make that plain and clear. 
Uh, many would say even they would rather the wine turn back into water. They would tell you that. But Jesus does this miracle. It is indeed wine. There's no way around that. It's not watered down grape juice. This is wine. It is strong drink. But the reason this was significant was because the bridegroom had the responsibility of providing the wine for everyone in attendance. And you see, a wedding back then, weddings are a big deal now. I'm, I'm doing a couple of those in October. I'm looking forward to those. And it's going to be a, a day-long event with a rehearsal the day before. But that's kind of going to be it. The next day after the wedding, I'm, I'm home free. But a wedding back then, it would last sometimes two to three weeks. It was a huge celebration. And the bridegroom had to provide the wine and the nourishment for everyone in attendance. And if he didn't come through, listen carefully, a lawsuit could even be threatened towards him and his family. Now, we find that crazy. Now, before you think it's crazy, people sue for far crazier things today, okay? But back then, this was a big deal. And so when Mary comes to Jesus, he says, she says very desperately, Jesus, the wines ran out. In other words, this is not a good situation. And then if we read further, again, this is a very short account, but we see that Jesus turns the water into wine. He bails the whole event out. He, he bails the bridegroom out of this cultural faux pas. But listen, don't miss this. It's so significant what Jesus is doing here. Because if Jesus is our bridegroom, and if we consider the whole counsel of Scripture, we find something so much more important here. Listen carefully. We need to understand that Jesus refers to himself later on as the promised bridegroom. He refers to himself in Mark chapter 2, in verses 18 through 20. Listen to this conversation. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast and the disciples, they do not fast? And Jesus said to them, listen carefully, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast on that day. Now, it's clear if you read a little further, this sounded very confusing to everyone listening. But as we look back on the life of Jesus and we understand the whole counsel of God's word, we understand very clearly and plainly, Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. It's me. You're not going to fast while I'm present with you. You should be rejoicing. But more than that, the, the picture begins to be even clearer. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, we find that we are his bride. You see, every wedding has a groom, and every wedding has a bride. In Revelation 19 and verse 7, we read this, let us be glad. Let us rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. Listen, church, we are that bride. We understand very clearly that the wedding that is talked about here, this is not a wedding in Cana anymore. No, it's pointing forward Far forward, in fact, to the wedding we will celebrate with our bridegroom one day in heaven in glory. But listen, just like this wedding here at Cana was not complete without wine, we need to understand that his blood is also the wine provided. In Matthew chapter 26 and verses 28 and 29, we read this from the mouth of Jesus. Now, this is going to be a little more familiar. You know that when we celebrate communion, we celebrate by taking the wafer, Right? taking the bread, which is his body, broken for us, and then the grape juice, which is, of course, symbolic of his blood that was shed for us. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples on that last night before his crucifixion. 
He says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When is that time? We just saw it. It's that wedding. It's that wedding with us and our great bridegroom, Jesus. And so this this subtle display of his power, don't miss this. Everyone else did. They missed it. But don't miss it today. This subtle display of his power then pointed far forward into the future to this celebration we have with our promised bridegroom. But notice this in verse 4. Jesus reveals something else about his glory. He reveals that he is our sovereign savior. He's our sovereign savior. Now, there's a rather comical exchange that happens between Jesus and his mother Mary in verse 4. I actually heard someone chuckle while I was reading it because I read it with some emphasis exactly the way it would have been spoken. It caught you a little bit off guard, as it should have. Now, my mom is with me today. They came to celebrate with us and be here with us. I don't think it would go over well if I spoke to her the way Jesus spoke to his mother. Would not be a good thing. I don't think she'd be coming to Cave Spring again, in fact. It would not be a great situation. And I didn't do that growing up, praise the Lord. But understand, what Jesus is saying here, it's not the same exactly. You know, when we, if we were to speak that way to our own mothers and call her lady or woman, that would be very disrespectful. What Jesus is actually doing here is very difficult to translate. It's like him saying ma'am or madam. And so it's not disrespectful. But here's what is significant. He could have used the word mother or mom, and he didn't. He does establish through this conversation some distance between he and his mother. Essentially, he says this, and make sure you get this. He says that not even his mother will dictate his sovereign activity. In other words, he says, I'm in charge. Now, how often do we, as God's people, think that we can dictate to God his activity? You've done this. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Lord, if you will just do this, I will do this. If you'll come through in this big way for me, maybe it's getting a job or something. You say, Lord, if you'll give me this job, I'll take all of the extra resources that I earn, and I'm going to give it away. I just want that financial peace and security. If you'll just get me what I need, I will do this. Listen carefully. The Lord is not to be tinkered with. He is not to be dictated to. He is God. He is Lord. And Jesus makes this clear at the very beginning of this first miracle. He says, what is it to me? But second, he speaks of this mysterious hour, and this is so much more important. This mysterious hour that is coming, he points forward. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, as we continue reading throughout John's gospel, we find the hour is mentioned nine different times, very specifically. It's unique to John's gospel. And what we find is this. It's pointing ahead to an ultimate hour. You see, this hour is what moves the narrative along, culminating ultimately at the cross and the resurrection to follow. Already though, even at the time of this first sign, Jesus had this hour in view. At the very beginning, John chapter 2, he's already pointing ahead and he's saying, listen, that hour is coming. What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is our sovereign savior. It tells us that no one took his life from him. He laid his life down 
for us willingly as our sovereign king and sacrifice. Listen, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, as if it wasn't already clear, listen to what Jesus says here. He says, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. Jesus says very clearly in verse 4, he says, listen, my hour has not come, but I'm in control. No one dictates to me what happens. He's our sovereign Savior. Now, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He says, behold, I'm here. The promised bridegroom is here. The sovereign Savior is here. This changes everything for the disciples, and it should change everything for us as well. Go back to verse 11. We find the second reason that Jesus does this miracle. It says, to reveal his glory. He revealed his glory, and it says there, his disciples believed in him. And so we find this. Jesus demonstrates his power to encourage our belief. To encourage our belief. Some would even say to validate our belief. Keep in mind some big statements were made in chapter 1. And what he does through this activity, he begins to validate some of those things. As we walk through the passage again, it's important to make note of what our belief should look like. We see belief demonstrated in some unique ways that are worth taking note of. The first thing is this. Our belief must persist in obscurity. It must persist in obscurity. Now, we see obscurity highlighted in a couple of places in this passage. The first place is in verse 1, and you read over it very quickly, I'm sure. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, most of the time, we don't pay attention to the places things occur. It's not really that important to us, but this is important. You see, Cana is a place that is so obscure, so out of the way, that some scholars today, they debate whether or not it was misspoken of here, or maybe it was a misspelling of a different place altogether. No one knew where this place was. Listen, a closer look even reveals this, however, that Cana was perhaps a small village eight miles north of Nazareth, which already was an out-of-the-way place, but listen, 72 miles north of Jerusalem. Its only significance at that time was this, a small band of Jewish rebels were training there. That's it. Now keep in mind, if you read on into chapter 2, look down there at verse 13. Where does Jesus go? He goes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the epicenter of all religious activity. Wouldn't it have made sense for Jesus to do his first miracle there where everyone could see? No. He does it in Cana of Galilee, this obscure, out-of-the-way place. In fact, John emphasizes it again in verse 11. He says it in verse 1 and 11. He says, make no mistake, this is where Jesus performed his first sign, his first miracle. Second, look down at verse 9. Jesus did this miracle, and not many people paid attention. I find this incredible. Look at verse 9. It says, when the head waiter, he tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though others did. That's incredible. This magnificent wonder had just happened just a few feet away, and the guy drinking the wine didn't have any idea what had happened. Why? Because Jesus was doing his greatest work in a hidden corner of a room, in a dark place, in obscurity. 
Jesus, you see, was not the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a strong military leader to deliver them from the oppressive Romans. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted a warrior king. Their desire to reshape the Messiah into their own design, it caused them to miss out entirely on who Jesus is. But just think with me for just a moment. What if Jesus had been the Messiah they wanted? What if he hadn't done his work in obscurity? What if he was the warrior king they all desired? Well, today you would read about him in history books as this great conqueror. He would have freed these people from the oppressive Romans at that time. But you and I, we would still be destined for hell because Jesus never would have went to a cross. Because Jesus did his greatest work in obscurity, you and I have an opportunity to be free from our sin. Jesus does his best work in dark places. Make no mistake, friend. Even when you don't see it, Jesus is working. Don't ever mistake God working in obscurity for him not working at all. God is always up to something wonderful and great. What a great reminder for us in this little place of Cave Spring today on our church anniversary. There aren't a lot of people that know about this place. I'll be honest, the first time I was told about it, I said, God, you're calling me where? This little city of 1,000 or 1,100 people And God's up to something in obscure places. He's doing his best work. But it's important that our belief also must align with his agenda. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Let's go back to this exchange between Mary and Jesus in verses 4 and 5. Listen carefully. He asks this, what seems to be a condescending question in verse 4. He says, my hour has not yet come. And instead of Mary calling him a smart mouth, listen to what she says. She says very humbly, do whatever he tells you. How significant is that? Her request, it seemed like, didn't line up with God's agenda or with Jesus' agenda. While we can't be sure specifically as to why Mary placed such confidence in Jesus, we can be sure that he trusted him to do something that only he could do. And she even persists in this confidence after Jesus questions why he should even be involved. In this, we see the persistent confidence we must also have. When we pray, we should trust that God does know best, that he hasn't abandoned us, and that he has not forgotten us. Write this down. Even when our prayers are not answered the way we might consider best, we must still trust that he is working for his glory and for our good. That's what Jesus did. So Mary conceded to him and she said, do whatever he tells you to do. We arrive at the end of our passage in verses 11 and 12 and we find this last characteristic of our belief. Our belief must lead to obedience. It must lead to obedience. As we go back to verse 11, I want you to see his glory is revealed and his disciples believed in him. But notice what they do in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, those that had just believed in him. And they stayed there only a few days. They followed him, friends. 
They left behind homes. They left behind families, jobs, security, everything to follow Jesus. Why? Because they believed in him. They believed in what they had just witnessed. Listen, they trusted him. The greatest miracle that day was not changing the water into wine. No, friend, the greatest miracle was a handful of changed lives that followed him to Capernaum. That is the miracle of John chapter 2. Jesus does this miracle in a very dark place. He makes provision in a very profound way that points to his glory. And the result is a handful of changed lives. Listen, after this miracle occurs, they didn't always understand who he was. They always had a few questions along the way. They couldn't always put the pieces together, but they still followed Jesus. Jesus has this same invitation for you in this room today. Later on, Jesus is going to say this to the people listening closely. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Follow me. So who is Jesus? That's the pivotal question. The answer today is the same answer given 2,000 years ago. It's the same answer that should give us hope as it did them then. Jesus is here. He's here. With this first miracle, Jesus initiated his life-changing work and his mission on this earth. Moving towards that hour, Jesus is here, and that changes everything. It changes everything for you as an individual. It changes everything for this church. In, in the face of any and all obstacles, listen, friend, we know that Jesus is here, and we move forward in the mission he has given us. Jesus is still here, and it still changes everything. He is here, and fear should flee. He is here and our faith must be certain. He is here and our lives must be changed.